Good afternoon and welcome, everybody. I'm, uh, as always, delighted to present uh, uh, our speakers uh, uh, each time we meet, but this time, again, it's a, it's a genuine personal present to uh, present also uh, a friend, not just a visiting uh, speaker, Professor Orna Sasson-Levy, who served just until recently as the head of the um, Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Bar-Ilan University in Israel, and also an associate professor at the Program of Gender Studies uh, at the university. Her main research focuses uh, on the field of gender and militarism. Her most uh, recent English publication is Women, Soldiers and Citizenship. Uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, in Israel, Gendered Encounter with the State, uh, co-authored with Edna Lomsky Feder. And um, just recently, a uh, Hebrew book published, Megdar uh, Babasis, um, co-edited uh, a volume dealing with roughly the same topics. But a completely uh, different book. Okay, yes. And the title of her talk today is Gendered Citizenship, the Case of Women Breaking the Silence. Orna, thank you for coming. Okay, thank you for inviting me, Yaakov, and thank you for joining me this afternoon in Oxford. It's very exciting, and it's a real honor to speak at Oxford. My paper today is a re-articulation of the ideas proposed in this book, co-authored by Professor Edna, Edna Lomsky-Feder and myself, which explores the meanings of women's military service in Israel. In this book, we argue that mandatory military service for women becomes a major arena for processes of initiation into gendered citizenship. The military is one of the main arenas for civic participation, since it is the institution most closely associated with the state, both in its ideologies and its practices. Thus, we understand the military as a contact zone where the citizen and the state meet. The encounters with the state are always shaped by gender ideologies and gendered interests, which are especially pronounced in the military, which is a hyper-masculine organization. Therefore, we analyze military service as a citizenship-conferring institution and focus on how it shapes the way women perceive the state and experience their citizenship. Although the initiation processes into citizenship are common to all Jewish women in Israel, their perceptions and experiences of citizenship are not uniform and should be studied according to ethnic and class intersections and also according to the role that they fulfilled in the military. In my lecture today, I want to explore one specific group of women, those who have served in the occupied territories and testified to an anti-occupation movement called Breaking the Silence. My question will be, why have these women come out and talk about violent experiences in the military when the common norm in Israel is to deny violence and to silence experiences of violence? I will open by introducing three analytical concepts that we developed in the book that I believe can help us understand women's military experience beyond the Israeli case. And specifically, they can help us understand the minority of women who choose to speak up and talk. First, however, I want to present the larger context. Israel, as I assume most of you know, is still the only country in the world with mandatory conscription for women. 60% of all Jewish women enlist, and they represent a third of the regular military, significantly, significantly more than any other Western military. Most Western militaries, women are up to 15% the most, usually around 10%. 
Interestingly, though this has been so since the establishment of the state in 1948, women's military service did not become taken for granted. It is highly controversial, drawing various groups into heated arguments again and again, and particularly with regard to women in combat. Indeed, since the mid-90s, the military's gender regime has undergone significant changes, such as opening up combat roles for women, dismantling the women's corps, and gender integrating of most military courses from basic training to officers' courses. Today, the military gender regime is no longer dichotomous and coherent structure as it used to be, where the men are the warriors and the women are the secretaries. Rather, it's a very dynamic field operating under the influence of conflicting pressures religious forces and conservative forces and masculine forces press for maintaining a clearly segregated gender order within the military, while bureaucratic forces, mainly the need of human power, and feminist and liberal forces are working to integrate women. These changes are not unique to the Israeli military. I want to remind you that in December 2015, former defense secretary in the US, Ashton Carter, declared that all combat roles will be open to women in the US forces. And as you know, maybe a few weeks ago on October 25, the British government made a very similar announcement about the British armed forces. In light of these dynamic forces, we seek to discard binary notions. When I say we, it's me and my colleague, <laughs> who is not here. We seek to discard binary notions of gendered power relations and examine the organization as one comprised of multiple gender arrangements. Gendered analysis of women's military service used to assume a very binary perspective, arguing that military service is either a mechanism for social mobilization and equal citizenship, that's the liberal feminism, of course, or a reification of martial citizenship in a form of cooperation with a patriarchal and violent institution. This is the attitude of radical feminism. We reject these two schemas as too simplistic and we aim to problematize these assumptions and argue that the military's inequality regime both create varied opportunities and set various obstacles for different intersectional groups of women and thereby generating diverse encounters with the state. Against this backdrop, our research asks how women interpret their encounter with the state through their participation in the institution most close associated with citizenship. We interviewed over 120 women, and we got testimonies of 20 women who gave testimonies to breaking the silence about a decade after their military service. Based on the analysis of the interviews, we contend that gendered encounters with the state can be understood through three interrelated concepts. Multi-level contracts, contrasting gendered experiences, and disacknowledging violence, and I will start with the first one. The experience of military service is shaped by differential social contracts between the state and the citizen, which reflect both formal citizen duties and rights and informal expectations and obligations. The contract, which is a product of, of course, negotiations and power relations between the two sides, and even two sides, the military and the soldier, derives its unique character from the cultural schema that shape the women's expectations of service. The meaning of the women's service is shaped by the nature of the contract 
and by whether it was fulfilled or violated during their service. And I'll give you one example only. We have more in the book. We discovered that women who served as secretaries present two very different narratives about their service. Lower class women who served as secretaries describe the service as enriching and empowering experience. This very positive interpretation emerges from their informal contract which sees military service as a venue to achieve a sense of respectability. Respectability is the term of Beverly Skaggs, and according to Skaggs, respectability connects personal identity with national identity and national belonging. In contrast, middle-class women enlist into, in the military with a sense of in, entitlement to self-fulfillment and also to gender equality. They expect to serve in a prestigious role, that will advance their social status and showcase their personal abilities. Service as a secretary, which pushes them back into the role that symbolizes traditional femininity, is experienced as a gross violation of their contract, and they talk about their service in terms of despair, disappointment, trauma, and one of them even said Holocaust about military service. Thus, if for lower class women, Military service is perceived as a path to acquiring respectability, inclusion in the political collective, and the military fulfills its part of the contract. For, military, for, for middle class women, military service is supposed to ensure their preferred status within the borders of the collective. Service as a secretary is considered abrogation of that contract, and they are deeply disappointed, and it's also reflected in the way they talk about their citizenship in Israel. The second concept, um, contrasting gendered experiences. Despite the military organization being hyper-masculine, it actually offers women broader range of gendered experiences than the civilian labor market. Military service pushes some women into traditional feminine roles, just like the secretaries that I just mentioned. But also many other women get a chance to experience blurring of gender experiences, for example, if they serve in the intelligence roles, and the intelligence is the biggest unit in the Israeli military, and a growing number of women get a chance to cross gender boundaries by serving either as combat instructors or as combat soldiers. These various roles create very different gendered experiences for the point of view of body, of sexuality, of emotional management. Through their embodied experiences, they learn their positionality in the army. They learn the boundaries of their body, the boundaries of their military power, etc. Thus, women's military experience provides concrete meaning to their participatory citizenship. It teaches them their position in the hypermasculine organization and their position vis-a-vis -vis the state. I must also say that although the military offers a very wide range of experiences, these experiences are always shaped and interpreted in light of the image of the combat soldier who embodies the nation state, embodies the ultimate citizen. This image demarcates the women's marginality and limits them. That is, the military opens up into opportunities for a variety of gendered experiences, but at the same time clearly lays down the patriarchal boundaries. And the last concept, disacknowledging violence. How do women soldiers experience, discuss, or deny militarized violence? The military, by definition, is the organization authorized to use violence on behalf of the state. That's the sociological definition. 
It is saturated with violence, whether directed outside to those who are defined as enemies, or directed inside towards women as sexual harassment and towards men very often in the form of hazing. Thus, soldiers are both agents and victims of militarized violence. Surprisingly, however, when we interview soldiers, mostly women, they do not discuss the violence of war and occupation. We heard a thunderous silence, so much so that you would think they talk about a different place in the, in the labor market, just a regular civilian workplace, and not about service in a force that has been controlling a hostile civilian population for over 50 years. The very few women willing to break the silence were the ones who testified to the organization breaking the silence. So it's their political voice and agency that I want to explore today. So this was the introduction. <laughs> and one more short introduction about breaking the silence. Breaking the silence is an anti-occupation protest movement which started out in 2004 as an organization of men who completed their service in the occupied territories. They documented and published testimonies of abuse of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Since 2010, they published testimonies of, um, the organization publishes testimonies by women soldiers. So for the first time, women veterans publicly presented eyewitness testimonies to an anti-war movement. For the first time in Israel, it doesn't happen in many other countries um, also. Today, the group is, um, um, the target of a campaign of prosecution and defamation right by the government, together with extreme right-wing NGOs. I want to give you just an example of what they do. Um, I have a testimony by a woman. Where can you escape? Okay, so this is one example. It has English subtitles of a woman giving a testimony which shows you that they're not staying anonymous anymore. They're giving testimonies with their face open. אהההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההה
חזרנו חזרה לפלוגה. ואני ניגשתי למפקד, שאמרתי לו, מה אתה עושה? כאילו, למה עשית את זה? הוא אמר לי, אין מה לעשות, ככה זה. זה או הוא או אני, וזה אני. והם לקחו אותו הציר, הם פשוט הרביצו לו. פשוט הרביצו לו, ברמה שהוא הכניס לו אגרופים, הכניסו סטירות. ולא היה למה, זאת אומרת, פשוט עבר שם במקרה, בטעות. So this was just an example, not a very lovely one. Um, based on the first 20 <coughs> testimonies, we argue that the meta-narrative that organizes the women's testimonies is an ongoing te tension between acknowledging and disacknowledging military violence. In the testimonies, the women declared that they had valuable knowledge on what occurred, and they describe different behaviors. At the same time, however, they claimed that they did not know what really happened and frequently argued that they would rather not have known. So the question of knowing or unknowing and gender is what interests me today. Let's hear Nofar's testimony. Nofar served as a company clerk, Pkida Plugatit, in the occupied city of Hebron, where 163,000 Palestinians are bullied and intimidated by about 1,000 Jewish settlers. Nofar's interview well, Himself, an ex-combat soldier and an activist, asks her. It's on the chrome, right? Okay. 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 Good. So he says, but you know that they detain people. And she says, but I never saw the detainees, nor did I know exactly. I didn't engage in operational activities. I think I pretty much didn't want to know, like it wasn't part of my job. But with all your political awareness, no, there wasn't any. No, I wasn't aware. Maybe I closed my eyes to it. Maybe I didn't want to know that I was there. But you were really in the middle of action. That's right, but you know, I sort of didn't see. I don't know. I sort of closed my eyes. Perhaps because it was too hard for me. If I had really been engaged in it, then maybe. And he says, so what were you engaged in? And she says, the soldiers, unbased social activity, social events, personal conversations. Yep. Um, and he says, but the reality was two meters away. He's pushing her. And she says, and I didn't relate to it. I don't know. Regarding the Palestinians, I don't know. I didn't ask. They didn't tell me. As you can hear, Nofar repeated time and time again the phrases, I don't know. Nofar could easily choose not to know because her job did not require her to leave the base and she did not directly encounter day-to-day -day reality of the occupation. Nonetheless, one event pierced her wall of not knowing. The day she encountered a handcuffed, handcuffed Palestinian detainee inside the base. This was her politicizing moment where she chose to know. Consequently, she wanted to hold discussions on ethics among the soldiers, but her commander would not allow it. The interviewer from Back in the Silence wondered why Nofar did not insist on talking to her soldiers, and she said, I think it was because of two reasons. One, because I was heavily involved in my social, soldiers' social life, and I was just to make things fun for them and take them out of the trenches. And also, I didn't want to be the leftist who raises these issues because I wanted to be the company clerk for everybody. 
a second soldier, Ayelet, served as a lookout. She could not fail to know what was going on. She was proud of her professional knowledge, which protected her from facing moral and emotional questions. Her politicizing moment was when she reported on what appeared to be four Palestinian children preparing to throw a Molotov cocktail. The military responded with live fire, and later it emerged that one of the children was killed. In the wake of this incident, Ayelet realized that despite the sophisticated knowledge and very clear rules of engagement, everyone was operating under a very high level of uncertainty. Furthermore, she learned that her professional knowledge was enlisted to construct a retroactive narrative used to justify the shooting. In her testimony, she described her debriefing with an investigator from the Shabak, the Israeli MI5. He asked me to give a written account of the incident as it occurred. That's it. Then you will have to sign it and you're done. And what did you write? What I've seen. But then it, I wasn't certain of what I've seen. I wasn't certain, but it did happen. And he says, why weren't you certain? Why wasn't I certain? Because it wasn't that bad what the boys did. It didn't affect anything. And also because you start to ask yourself, so supposing they just put their hands up. I told the investigator what I recall happening. And then I asked him what happens if it didn't in fact happen. He said that even if it didn't happen, they would confess. So the interviewer says, what does it mean they would confess? And she says, I didn't ask. I decided I'd rather not know. So the stories of Nofar and Ayala demonstrate the movement between knowing and not knowing the violence of occupation. Of course, we can argue that they do not discuss the violence of occupation since they did not encounter it directly. Yet it is clear that their silence is part of the denial and silencing mechanisms of the occupation that are very prevalent in Israeli society. In an attempt to preserve the image of the just society and moral military, Israeli society activates various mechanisms to deny military violence, including emphasizing the Jewish victimhood, especially the Holocaust, stressing the traumatic discourse, and ignoring completely Palestinian suffering. In this context, any discussion of the word violence itself, which I experience when I talk about it, when I give these lectures in Hebrew, is perceived as treason, making it very difficult not only to object to military violence, but even to acknowledge it and cope with it morally. Against this backdrop, the women who did manage to break the silence and made their voice heard are exceptional, are a small minority. So I will now analyze their decision to break the silence, employing the three analytical concepts that I mentioned before. The first one was multi-level contract. The women's decision to testify indicated that the contract with the state includes a moral element. As the military's violence is so often silenced or denied, they expect to serve in a very moral military force accordingly. They felt that the experiences they went through in the occupied territories violated the moral clause in their contract. They came to realize that the military employs violence on a regular basis and that the boundaries of legitimate power are very often crossed. It was this disillusionment and even rage of the violation of their contract that drove them to testify. Gali's story is a case in point. Before enlisting, Gali had 
right-wing views, and she supported the occupation, and she voted for right-wing parties. Serving as a border patrol police officer on the Jordanian border, she was in charge of controlling Palestinians' movement, including body searches. Her politicizing moment, which, which was a completely life-changing event for her, occurred when a young man was detained because a woman soldier had complained that he talked back at her. Gali perceived the interaction as flirting. She said to us in the interview, to, to, in the testimony, the Palestinian was sure that it was all in good fun because we're talking here about young people, all the same age. But the interaction turned out into militarized power relations and the young man was detained. Gali said, the station commander was responsible for everything that happened there. And it was he who took the boy into detention and I followed them. We got to the police station and they went into a closed room and I remained outside the door. I didn't know why I stayed there. I didn't have to. I don't know. Something told me to stay. Now looking back, I recall, I heard through the closed door everything that was going on inside. It was then that Gali became a direct witness to violence that went inside the room. And from that incident onward, she decided to know. She started asking everyone she met, what did you do in the army? What did you do yesterday? What do you do in the military? Um, she st started taking uh, testimonies herself and her political point of view completely changed. And she became an activist. For Nira, who served in Hebron as an education officer, the politicizing moment was the first arrived on the base, the first day on the base, and she uh, goes to meet the soldiers in the base, um, and she finds out the soldiers steal prayer beads from the Palestinians. Prayer beads, mass bachot. And she says, as a new soldier on the, on the base, I went to a routine welcome interview with a brigade commander the following day, and he asked me, so what do you think of the brigade so far? And I said, it's fine, except that I saw soldiers with masbachot and Korans from Kalkilia that they took as souvenirs. The commander followed up Anira's report with the soldier's direct commander who said, I've never seen this girl. She's lying. She's making it up. What are you saying? My soldiers would never do a thing like that. Um, the confrontation between Nira and the, and the commander continued over the phone, and that's what Nira said. I told him, look, it happened. And he said, who are you anyway, you pipsqueak? You don't understand anything. And from that, that moment on, I was banned from the company for four months. I was not allowed near them. So Nira was caught here between her loyalty to her soldiers and her loyalty to her own moral code. The violation of the moral code made her speak up and she was willing to pay the price for it. The politicizing moments we find out that she and her colleagues experience turn out to destroy everything, to ruin everything. After this politicizing moment, they dis disrupt the process of initiation into the military gender regime. They question their loyalty and belonging to the state, and they counteract compliance with a gendered citizenship. The second concept is gendered experiences. The testimonies indicate that not only the violation of an implied moral contract, but also the women's gendered experiences had a part in pushing them to speak up. Often, these women were the first, or among the first, women in combat units, or the first to serve in support roles, like the education roles, in the occupied territories. The army conveys to these women that they are crucially necessary. But despite this, 
during their service, they have to cope with discrimination, exclusion, and silencing. The hostility and distrust of the men soldiers will convey to the women through ongoing initiation rights, challenge them to exhibit more violence toward Palestinians, to prove that they deserve to be in combat. Daphne, a combatant, described these rights. She said, five of us girls joined a new company. This was the first time girls served there. We had a difficult time. Everyone looking at us, testing us. It was a truly battle for survival, always having to prove ourselves and live in the shadow of proof. Other women mentioned the loneliness of being only a few girls among dozens of men in a sexually charged atmosphere, brimming with contempt for women, inferior living condition, and devalued roles. This narrative attests to the women's feeling of being outsiders within, excluded from the camaraderie of men. The outsider's position has a silencing effect. Um, the women often felt that they could not voice criticism or cast doubt because of the very real fear of being ostracized. The very few who dared so were marked as leftists or informers and had to pass more initiation rights to prove their loyalty. Hence, the testimonies demonstrate that in addition to the general silencing mechanisms that I mentioned earlier, there are also specific gendered silencing mechanisms that are deployed specifically against women. Their ambivalent position as women in a masculinist environment, the experience of outsiders within, and especially the gendered hostility they experienced, pushed them to speak up. Moreover, these experiences made them interpret the military day-to-day -day life from a gender experience. In their testimonies, they very often criticize the men, the soldiers, who abuse Palestinians and describe them as infantile, macho bravery. In particular, they blame the male soldiers for having fun, for enjoying the violence, for being over-enthusiastic. These are the words that repeated again and again, over-enthusiastic. Tal, a combatant, described the men soldiers' behavior during house searches. She said, the deputy com company commander went out to map a Palestinian house. When he came back, he said to me, we messed up their house. He was so enthusiastic about it. And instead of thinking, wow, we are such men, in my mind, I was thinking about those poor women who are now cleaning up the mess that the soldiers made and the fear of the children at home. So things like that happen, and then you're surprised at the age of 18, they blow themselves up. Tal's criticism is directed at the men's behavior, characterized by overenthusiasm and pleasure in violence, while the commander demonstrates his masculinity by exhibiting his power over the occupied population, Tal identified with the women victims of the search. By portraying the soldiers as immature, the women deconstruct the image of the hegemonic masculinity that is based on the emotional and physically self-controlled and disciplined combat soldier. Hence, the women's ambivalent position in the military constructs how they know or do not know what takes place in the occupied territories. The patriarchal ideology very often trivializes women into the position of the ones who don't know or don't know enough, especially in the security arena. At the same time, the women are so disappointed 
by the violation of their moral contract, which together with their gendered experiences, and that makes them speak up. The decision to testify reflects a position of knowledge, as well as the ethical decision to break the silence and give their knowledge a public voice. Thus, the military's gender regime, which shapes their gendered experiences, also shapes their political voice. And now I'm coming towards the conclusion. Okay, first of all, I want to emphasize, not all women soldiers who have served in the territories experience a moral crisis, and most of them do not choose to testify. It's this very small minority that chooses to testify and talk about their service. So what does the silence of the majority teaches us? And what, and what, the testimony, what do the testimonies teach us about gender citizenship? The ignorance of most women of military violence teaches us that violence is not a part of the women's perceived contract with the military. Most women do not expect to be exposed to violence. They enlist because this is the law and they expect to serve the service to give them a sense of respectability or belonging or boost the future professional career. They do not expect to encounter violence. Conversely, in the men's contract with the military, violence is very central. Of course, the combat soldier knows he will encounter violence, but also non-combat soldiers evaluate the service in comparison to the combat soldier and they think about violence. As violence is not part of women's contract with the military, we often see that when a woman soldier dies in action, the public outrage and anxiety are much more intense than when a woman civilian dies in a terrorist attack, for example. Hence, women combat participation challenges the perception that women need protection even when they are soldiers. And moreover, women in combat challenges men's exclusiveness in the battlefield and the resulting benefits that men get from the combat roles. This is why opening combat roles to women, as declared on both sides of the Atlantic, raises such a powerful opposition, and especially so in Israel. Removing violence from women's contact with the military indicates their status as being outsiders within. Of course, they enlist, but they do not take part in the most um, central action of the military, which is participating in the violence. Thus, they are marked as incomplete military subject, and hence lacking in their citizenship. Hence, women in Israel are not excluded from the public sphere, they are not excluded from the security field, they are not excluded from being citizens, but as Carol Pettman said many, many years ago, they are incorporated into public life as women, as beings whose sexual embodiment prevents them from enjoying the same political standing as men. In other words, their military service establishes them as citizens, but not as equal citizens with a line separating them from full citizenship is participating in military violence. Hence, participation in violence has a constituting role in shaping full citizenship in Israel. Um, it's one of the saddest conclusions that we arrived at, I must say. Since violence is not part of women's contract with the military, most women come to accept the traditional view of women in need of men's protection, and they internalize their marginal place also in civilian life. Taking that marginality for, 
granted has two major implications for women's citizenship in Israel. The first implication is that women untangle the Republican link between military service and claiming civilian rights. Men very often require from the state symbolic and material benefits in return for the violent contribution. While women feel that they are not entitled to that. Many women feel grateful for having received the opportunity to constitute their belonging to the nation through military service, and they see it as the exercise of the civil right on its own. Thus, they do not claim any additional civil benefits. When women in Israel do claim civil benefits or make claims on the state, they do it usually as mothers or as mothers for soldiers, um, rather than as veterans, and thus they reproduce the gendered citizenship and gendered civilian hierarchies. Second, since women do not take part in violence, they do not assume they can leverage their military service to obtain political voice, and they do not consider themselves entitled to political criticism. So the testimonies are very unique in that sense. The testimonies of the women silence breakers indicate what can make a woman soldier decide to speak truth to power, as Foucault said, after all. Brutal violations of the moral contract and of their gendered expectations lead to political disillusionment and to the decision to be active in civil society organizations. We could say that it's their politicizing moments that capture the violation of their moral and gendered contract and push them to speak up. Hence, the case of the silence breakers shows that military service can be a new source, an unexpected source, for women's symbolic power in the political field. The hypermasculine organization, which is very often marginalizing women, can also be leveraged to justify political criticism, political agency. However, of course, leveraging military service to justify a political voice is also a source of its weakness, because when women do so, they reaffirm the male-dominated Republican ethos that, grain, sorry, that grants political superiority and power to male warriors. Thus, their testimonies reproduce the role of the military as a citizenship-conferring institution and reproduce masculine power within the state. But this criticism notwithstanding, still, I want to conclude and say that the women's testimony offer an alternative framing of soldiering, gender, and anti-militarist discourse, thereby challenging the hegemonic masculinity of the combat soldier who embodies the nation state. Though testimonies through, sorry, through testimonies like the ones we've seen and heard today, these women untie the Gordian knot between military, state, and masculinity. Thank you.